This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with former Greek finance minister, economist and author Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis joined me for a long-form conversation about his new book, Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present. Yanis shares his vision for a fair, just and competitive post-capitalist society as detailed in Another Now. We also discuss his political activism, influences, and time as finance minister seeking to negotiate a financial settlement for Greece with Europe's establishment. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted now to welcome onto the show Yanis Varoufakis, who is an economist, an academic, a best-selling author, a politician, and the former finance minister of Greece. He's the author of a memoir, Adults in the Room, and also another book, And the Week Suffer What They Must. And uh, one of his most recent bestsellers is Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, A Brief History of Capitalism. Now, many of you would be familiar with Giannis for different kinds of reasons, but uh, he has actually been a professor of economics in Britain, Australia and the USA before he entered government. And he's also currently professor of economics at the University of Athens. And after resigning from Greece's finance ministry, he has since co-founded an international grassroots movement, DM25, which campaigns for the revival of democracy in Europe. And it is really such an honor to have you on the show, Yanis, and thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Amy. It's great to be on your show. It is really great to talk to you about a book that is really fascinating. It's called Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present. And uh, we are going to delve into the content of this book in um, a lot of depth, but I wanted to set the scene for our listeners to have a kind of brief conversation about your political passions, your activism, that really has been, I guess, a long-term project. And I wanted to understand the way that you've spoken about yourself, where you feel that you fit in the world of political activism. And I've heard labels like libertarian Marxist. So I just wanted to get a sense from you as to how you see yourself as a politician and as an activist and as a thinker, an intellectual thinker about economics and politics. I consider myself deep down to be a true blue liberal, not in the you know, the Australian political party context, but in the context of somebody who just, I just can't stand illegitimate power. I can't stand oppression, exploitation, people telling you to what to do effectively, um, when what they're telling you is in their own interest and part of you know, a pattern of domination. So, you know, the idea of human freedom and autonomy is central to my thinking. Uh, I suppose this is why I became an academic, because uh, you know when I was uh, finishing my master's in England uh, back in the early 80s, an academic life seemed uh, like um, an oasis from being told what to do. You know, as an academic, you don't earn much, but at least uh, you are your own uh, despot. You decide what to read, what to write, uh, what to teach, what to research. Uh, so in that sense, I'm a liberal, but you know, in the world we live in, consider getting the, the, you know, many young people's uh, dream job working for Google, let's say, right? 
Mm. Um, the moment you enter Google, you enter something like the Soviet Union, much nicer than the Soviet Union, you know, pastel colors everywhere and, you know, table tennis um, facilities and, you know, nice cushions and <laughs> couches and all that. <laughs> but it is a centrally planned system where, you know, um, it's completely top down. There is a company ideology, and you, you, know, you have to sing the song of Google, and you have to, to 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 say the right things while you're in there. There's no marketplace. You enter Google, there's no market. It's just a hierarchy, and that that seems to me incredibly oppressive, especially when the vast majority out there have to to do precarious jobs in order to make ends meet. So for me, to be genuinely liberal, you've got to oppose um, both the authoritarianism of the state that tells you what to do but also the authoritarianism of corporations. Thus, for me to be genuinely liberal, you have to be a Marxist. And the danger is that, of course, if you're a Marxist, then you may end up becoming another kind of authoritarian, um, you know, creating gulags for uh, comrades. So life is hard if you're trying to seek genuine freedom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The way that it actually is today is not really the way that you speak of it I guess in that really um, stereotypical sense, the way that a lot of politicians would define libertarianism. Yeah, that's correct, because, uh, you know, it, it, go, go back to the Soviet Union, because for, for me the Soviet Union is a nightmare, but a nightmare from which we have to learn a great deal. If you look at the official ideology of uh, the Soviet Union, just like, you know, of the official ideology of the Spanish Inquisition, it was Christianity, yeah? it was great. It was all about love, loving your brother and your neighbor and your sister and so on. But in reality, it was just an exercise of enormous authoritarianism and cruelty. Similarly with the Soviet Union, Marxism. If you read Karl Marx, you can't get more of a liberal person than Karl Marx, uh, who even believed that the, the state must wither. And in his name, what did they do? They built up the most monstrous uh, authoritarian state. Same with the libertarians. You know, they, they speak... Uh, uh, the, the, the language of Adam Smith, you know, of the baker, the brewer, the butcher, who provides us with our daily bread, uh, meat and uh, ale as a result of entrepreneurship in a small town uh, marketplace where, um, you know, everybody is nice to one another and nobody has too much power. And it's competition that keeps the baker, the, the butcher and the brewer uh, in business and also providing us with the things that we need in a manner that serves their personal interest. But their personal interest and the community interest is aligned. That is the, that, that is a myth. Mm. We don't live in the world. We live in a world of gigantic companies that steamroll over people and the environment, which uh, operate like sm small, you know, not that small actually, Soviet unions. Uh, with authoritarianism, with hierarchies that can crush you if you dare you know, tell the truth. And all that is being legitimized through Adam Smith's portrayal of a front porch community, which is dying at the hands of the corporations that are doing their business under the cover of Adam Smith's narrative. That's really, really an excellent point. Um, it does make me think that by invoking the name of the brewer and the baker, they're seeking to establish that they are just the every man, the every person. Um, you can relate to me. I'm not one of those elite. I'm not the banker, so to speak. But it's obviously more of a smokescreen than anything else. All despots are like that. Stalin mm. was trying to portray himself as a man of the people. 
the man who owned nothing and who was, you know, just a boy from Georgia, Georgia, so, you know, Russian Georgia or Soviet Russia, uh, Georgia. Similarly, with most smart rulers, uh, the more tyrannical they are, the more they present themselves as, you know, men, usually men. I'm not yeah. mentioning women here, usually men of the people. Mm. I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that seem related to this new book, but they are taking me back to a couple of your previous works. The first thing I wanted to ask about was your parents, because you've brought them up and referenced them and their influence on your thinking of Europe and Germany and and how that's shaped you. And I just wanted to ask a little bit about your father and mother, who you have mentioned in Adults in the Room and in and the Weeks Suffer What They Must. And of course, you talk about your daughter in talking to my daughter about the economy. How has your family shaped you politically? Because they were also very actively involved in politics. And you even say that your mother was one of the leading influential figures in the 1970s feminist movement. Well, my parents influenced me enormously. Like I think you know, we are all influenced. Every single one of us are directly or indirectly influenced by our, by our parents. Uh, they never set out to influence me. Uh, they were very liberal, small L liberal again. Mm. Uh, but it was through the experiences that um, uh, I observed that uh, they influenced me. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, to begin with, it was a very interesting time in terms of the Chinese proverb. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a fascist dictatorship, or thing. So when I was about six, uh, I still remember the thud in the middle of the night at four in the morning when the uh, when the police broke down our door to abduct my father, it was the night of the 21st of April, 1967, which will stay indelibly in my mind because we had a coup d'etat. Mm-hmm. Parliament was dissolved, the constitution was dissolved. Thousands of, uh, of uh, people who were considered to be on the left, like my dad, disappeared for months, um, some, some forever. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so you can imagine that this kind of experience concentrates a child's mind. And starts asking political questions because they, they are the only questions that can actually um, illuminate what's going on. Uh, my father, interestingly, you know, he grew up in Cairo, in Egypt. Um, he had a French mother, a Greek father, who used to be the director of Thomas Cook at the time, organizing those, um, you know, uh, great um, uh, death on the Nile kind of cruises on the Nile, on the River Nile, for the British aristocrats. Mm. Um, and his wife, my grandmother, was um, a suffragette, uh, a proto-feminist. And being French, she, you know, my father grew up with Voltaire and Rousseau and, you know, the greats of the French Enlightenment. And he was a, 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 he was a liberal. He was... Um, he was steeped in the tradition of French liberalism. Uh, in 1946, he made the great mistake, because of his Greek father, to try to study in Greece at the University of Athens. He arrives in Athens in 1946 during a lull of a civil war between the ultra-right and the ultra-left. And because he, was, he landed, that's his own expression, in Athens like a UFO, that is, you know, he, nobody knew what to make of him. And because this was a period of rapprochement or an attempted rapprochement between the left and the right, when he he enrolled at the School of Chemistry at the University of Athens, uh, both sides decided to ask him to be the president of the Student Union because 
he was completely neutral. He was the definition of neutrality. And the reason I'm telling you this is because a month or, or two later, the universities uh, doubled the fees, student fees, at the time when students were actually malnutrition during the, 19, the 1940s, immediately after the war and the civil war, the first civil war, uh, young men and women at the university did not have enough to eat. Mm. Uh, so the doubling of the fees was an issue. And my father thought, well, okay, I'm a president of the student union, I'll go to the, to, the, to the chancellor, to the rector of the university, and I shall complain very politely. He put on his suit and his tie, like he always did, and still does, by the way, he's still with us. Oh, wow. um, and he walked into the rector's office and he made a plea for a suspension of the doubling of the fees and he was all very polite. Um, and he left and on the way out, he was abducted by secret police who tortured him uh, for no reason. <laughs> and, and, and then the, uh, uh, an officer, a police officer arrives and he's very nice to him. He was a good cop. And he says, oh, I'm I'm very sorry for this. This, this. this is unacceptable. They should not have done this to you. Sign this piece of paper and leave. And this piece of paper was a denunciation of communism. Mm -hmm. And my father said, I'm not a communist, but you know, I'm not a Buddhist either. If you ask me to denounce Buddhism, I'm not going to sign the denunciation because I do not believe, and he gave you know, this, the, the speech of a liberal, I do not believe the state has the right to ask me to denounce beliefs that even if I don't have them. And okay, to cut a long story short, he spent four years in a concentration camp for communists and, of course, joined the Communist Party. So, you know, with that kind of background, and as you said, my mother, who was um, a conservative young girl when she met my father, um, they always had huge political fights because she, she was um, more to the right than my father. She was what you might call, in Australian terms, um, the right faction of the ALP. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> to get a sense of, of how they were. Um, but in 1974, when the fascist dictatorship, I grew up in, collapsed, and we, we went back to parliamentarianism. And my mother um, became very active um, with a group of another 100 women. It was about 100 of them that started it. And they would uh, travel the countryside and try to convince uh, farm women, women working on the land, that their husbands did not have the right to rape them, beat them up. And they created shelters for them. And that was the beginning of a very impressive feminist movement, which by 1983 culminated to perhaps the most progressive legislation for family law in Europe. That's amazing. What a legacy. It got me really interested about that. And maybe I'll pick up on some of those themes when we get into another now. Um, just one other thing before we leap into the book directly the other part of your political life, which perhaps some people will be familiar with, given um, just how public it was, when you were finance minister for Greece during that very much tumultuous time, it was something which certainly captured the attention of the world, really. I remember watching you speak on Late Line, on on Late Night Live, giving updates about what was happening. And of course, Adults in the Room, your memoir really does take people through that time, which is, um, you know, so fascinating. But one of the things that I think is so particularly pertinent for our conversation today 
and why I think so many people got so caught up in Greece's economic woes wasn't necessarily because we had a great interest in economics. It was because of the power dynamics, the power relations that were playing out so publicly and so overtly in this kind of public realm. And although you're having private meetings, the way that power was playing out at the highest levels in Europe was something that I think did capture the attention and the fascination of many people who wouldn't normally be so engaged with politics. So I wanted to ask just about that experience and how that has influenced you in terms of the political activism that you're now undertaking as a politician and the DM25 movement having co-founded that. It was um, an interesting moment in European history, but also globally, because for the first time in perhaps many, many decades, a small nation elected a government uh, with a very clear mandate to go to creditors and say, we don't want your money anymore because your money um, you know, simply adds to our, our debt pile. Uh, you're giving us credit cards by which to pretend to be repaying previous credit cards. And uh, you're giving us these credit cards under conditions that crush our people. You know, that was a very, um, let's put it <laughs> simply, a very weird kind of defiance. Mm. Uh, we don't want more loans. At the time when, remember after 2008, um, the financial collapse uh, across the Western world, what, what was going on in the United States, uh, in Europe, it's still going on. You have insolvencies which are being papered over by means of more unsustainable loans. And a small nation said, no, we're not going to take those loans anymore. You want to crash us? Do it. Do your worst. Hmm. Uh, but Amy, let me say that for me, you asked me about my own personal experience. Which experience was it that shaped me in 2015 or influenced me and influenced my decision to go into politics and, and to start a party from zero again? at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, and get elected in parliament with a new party mm. um, we created from zero. I will have to focus on one meeting. First meeting with Christine Lagarde, uh, the then head of the International Monetary Fund and currently president of the European Central Bank, who was, uh, from where I was standing, she was um, representing the most powerful institution in the world, the IMF that was acting as a bailiff on behalf of international creditors of the most powerful men and very, very few women on the planet. And, you know, I, I approached that meeting with as much care and, uh, and analysis and, and preparation as I could. Uh, I walked in the, into that meeting. Um, Christine was charming. Uh, she was actually very pleasant. And we sat down with our aides and we exchanged uh, analysis of what the situation was and proposals of what should happen in the future. That lasted for a while. And then at some point it was just her and me. And that's when she startled me. That, that was the, the, the moment of epiphany, if I may say. Because when the aides had all gone, she turned around and she said, but Janice, of course you were right in what you're saying. And I thought, what? She <laughs> <laughs> said, um, what we're asking you to do is impossible. It can't be done. And then I looked at her and I thought, what, was it that easy? Have I just convinced the most powerful institution in the world that I'm right? And of course, this thing was in the tail. She said, but you've got to understand that we have put so much political capital in this that we can't go back. 
and your political career and credibility depends on accepting it and go along with it. So there she was telling me that I was right, that what they were asking our people to do would crash us, and they wouldn't get their own money back. So I was negotiating with creditors who yeah. didn't really care to get their money back. And that's, that concentrates the mind. But for them, uh, simply steamrolling over us because this is where their political capital had been invested. Uh, and also telling me that my political career depends on effectively being co-opted, becoming an insider. That for me was a fantastic portrayal of um, our politics, the demise of liberal democracy, because the fact that liberal democracy is just a pretense. And my determination to do something about it, you know, minuscule, tiny, whatever, <laughs> uh, but, you know, not to be co-opted in that system of insiders that is destroying the very concept of liberal democracy that they're supposed to be trading on. Mm, absolutely. It is staggering to think that rationally she could understand that it was just totally not possible and completely unrealistic. And yet this absolute commitment, unwavering commitment to push ahead. Um, yeah, it is quite amazing. And as you say, it hasn't really changed at all. And I think that is why that story and that experience is still so relevant now. And that's also why this new book that you've written is really very pertinent because we're still grappling with the exact same issues that we were in 2008, in 2015. And these are things that I think a lot of people who would class themselves as left-wing or progressive would have thought that surely um, we would have made, you know, substantial progress on by now. And it's not just left-wingers, you know. Mm -hmm. One of the great uh, sources of solace for me personally in 2015 was the great support I got from libertarians. I had people working with me as my aides that I would never have imagined to be on my side. I had Lord Norman Norman Lamont, for instance, who was Thatcher's uh, minister and John Major's Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mm. a very right-wing Tory, um, who became a great friend and supported me. I had people like Larry Summers, the, the Treasury Secretary of Bill Clinton, who cannot be accused of being um, left-wing or progressive. Uh, he's the man who in the 1990s effectively unshackled Wall Street bankers from all the restrictions that uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had placed them under during the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why these uh, right-wing libertarians or liberals, uh, conservatives, call them what you might, uh, supported me personally was because we had a common front. We were against Ponzi capitalism. Uh, the, you know, what, what was happening in Greece was a microcosm of what was happening after 2008 across the world. That is, you know, governments printing mountain ranges of money, giving it to bankrupt bankers who would then you know, lend it to corporations that would not use it to invest in good quality jobs or climate change mitigation. But what they would do with the money is go to the stock exchange and buy back their own shares. So you'd had financial markets that did fantastically. Uh, And, you know, the good people out there not getting good quality jobs, not getting investment in infrastructure, in public health, education, in doing something about the green transition that the planet needs. Uh, So, you know, it's been magnificent over the last six years. Uh, Me as a leftist, having um, uh, this kind of alliance with liberals, uh, genuinely liberals, uh, honest liberals, 
who look at capitalism today and don't even recognize it as capitalism. It's a kind of feudalism, um, which um, is uh, combining the worst of the state with the worst of um, monopoly capital. Yeah, it is. It is unrecognizable. And in this book, Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present, you open the book with young Govaro, who is uh, presumably your voice, really, your predominant voice. That's right. Yango is um, the narrator Mm. and he narrates the book from the perspective of 2036, looking back. Um, He is my alter ego, if you want. I didn't want to put myself in there, but I wanted to make it clear that, yes, it is my kind of take. And by the way, just, you know, an aside, it's what they used to call, what the British colleagues of my grandfather used to call him in Cairo back in the 1930s. Oh, that's lovely. And when you were just talking about how capitalism nowadays is so unrecognisable, well, this idea of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism in the 1980s is a constant theme and a constant reference point throughout this book. And it seems like it's a very critical moment in the economic and political history of of this world, it's probably not the main one, as you say, 2008 has become a, a kind of critical point in this book to spring from. But I did want to ask about the point that you're making about Thatcherism and about Reaganomics that is interweaved throughout this book as a kind of reference point to the our now, the now that we're talking about that is the capitalistic now. If you look at the post-war era, after 1945. Effectively, we had three periods. One is the period of great stability, the golden era of um, capitalism, the 1950s and 1960s, a period of uh, sustained growth, inequality was slashed. We had never before had we had so much equality. Uh, Unemployment was low, inflation was low. Uh, people could um, reliably trust that their kids would have a better life than they did, that they themselves next year, in the two, next two years, would have a better life than they're having today. Uh, that two-decade period didn't happen by accident. It was, a, it was the result of a design. If you cast your mind back to the 1950s and 60s, this was the Bretton Woods era, when um, you know the Australian dollar, the British pound, the American dollar, the German Deutschmark, uh, they, they had fixed exchange rates. It was a very interesting world. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, effectively we had a, a single currency across the world founded on the dollar. Uh, we had very strict capital controls. You know, if you were very rich, you just couldn't take your money and run uh, or send it at the press of a button anywhere you want. Uh, you had, yes, you had free trade and you had lots of cooperation and you had the United States economy uh, be using its surpluses in order to stabilize both Japan, therefore Australia in the Pacific, and uh, Europe. The European Union was a construction of the United States after the Second World War, as was modern Japan in a sense. So it was a planned capitalism that uh, grew steadily and sustainably. But in 1971, that first phase blew up. Uh, And it blew up because the United States no longer was a surplus economy. So then we move into the second phase, uh, where the United States goes deeply into red, into the red, so it becomes a deficit country. It imports a lot more than it exports. And that trade deficit becomes like 
something like a vacuum cleaner sucking into the United States the exports of the Germans, of the Dutch, of the Japanese, and then later, of course, the Chinese, keeping all these factories around the world going. What was it that was keeping those factories uh, humming nicely along? It was the American trade deficit, but that had to be somehow financed. It was financed by the profits of the Japanese, Chinese, German capitalists of the Saudis and so on, rushing to Wall Street to, you know, to, 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 to effectively to reproduce themselves, but that was closing the loop. And to do that, you had politicians were forced in a sense to do away with all the restrictions on banking. And the, 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 there was a need for a, an ideology for freeing up, liberating bankers. And that ideology was Thatcherism, Reaganism. So you have Thatcher and Reagan on the basis of the narrative that the state needs to go away and finance must be allowed to do its own thing and markets must be liberated from the shackles of government and all that, creating um, a very interesting unbalanced equilibrium <laughs> around the world with all this money running around. This was globalization, financialized globalization. That was the second era. And then 2008 was the comeuppance of that era. You know, all the, the houses of cars that were built by the Wall Street finances, the City of London finances, collapsed. And then the state comes back in and starts pumping money into the financial sector to refloat it. So we had socialism for the bankers after 2008 and um, you know, austerity for the vast majority of folks out there. So my book effectively tries to answer a very simple question. Could we have done things differently after 2008? Could we have, without going back to the social democracy of the 50s and 60s, could we not go back to a situation where the state is simply refloating finance at the expense of the majority of people around the world? So that is effectively, if you want, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the motivation behind another now, behind my new book. Mm. Yes, it seems like at the time taking my mind back to 2008, it seemed from a politician's perspective, almost like a reflex action, that it didn't really seem to be thought about that perhaps there was another way. It seemed like, just like you talk about with that Thatcherist saying, Tina, there is no alternative. It seemed like, you know, Barack Obama and the central banks just immediately went into, well, we've got to bail them out. And of course, then we had the flip side of that, which was the social movements of the time and which are important to this book of Occupy Wall Street, for example. We did see, I guess, a reaction in another sense from society, from people who fundamentally disagreed with the strategy, but it seemed at that elite uh, political and economic level that there really wasn't a different thought. Would that be correct? Look, the politicians could not have done things differently because they were already in the pockets of the bankers. Mm. Uh, let, let me be, be, be blunt about that. Obama would never have been president if he had not sided with Wall Street even before he became president. The, you know, the Chancellor of Germany at the time and the finance minister of Germany, they, their campaigns had already all been helped, let's say, by you know the financial sector, they were already in cahoots with the bankers. They didn't. They had neither the analytical capacity nor the moral authority to say to the bankers when all those houses of cards of the banking sector collapsed, 
to say to them what that which they should have said to them, which is, you know, we will bail out the banks because we need banks, <laughs> but we're not going to bail you out. We're going to do what Sweden did in 1992 when its banks collapsed or South Korea in 1998. Uh, we will nationalize the banks, get rid of you, cleanse them. And once we cleanse them, we can sell them back to new owners. That's what they should have done. Of course, mm-hmm. they didn't have the to do it, the analytical capacity to do it. They were already in their pockets. So in my book, it's not the politicians that uh, do the right thing. It's the social movements not doing the silly things we did uh, after 2008. Because, you know, I have to tell you that I was at Wall Street, at Occupy Wall Street. I gave a talk there. I was in Occupy, the city of London, and so on. Those were great moments. We all go together. We were so much in love with with ourselves uh, for saying the right things, having democratic discussions in the squares and on the street. But of course, you know, after a while, people got sick and tired of this and went home. So in another now, I asked the question, what could we have done differently to bring down this financialized pseudo-capitalism and to replace it with a truly liberal democratic society? Yes, that's why I do love it, because it really challenges you when you're reading it to think critically and actively about this proposal, this new other way that could be happening right now, that we could have taken a path from 2008 into the future. And um, it's interesting that this book is fictional, of course, and it draws upon science fiction elements um, of storytelling. And what I wanted to discuss with you in a bit more detail is this other now that you envision, that you really lay out in great detail and that you explore through these three main characters, Costa, Eva and Iris. And Costa being a tech evangelist and an engineer, Eva being an archetypical liberal, a former investment banker, having a PhD in mathematics. Iris, who, as you say, is a Marxist lesbian, who's very much a feminist, but of course she's almost a contrarian as well. She has such a strong, um, wonderful personality that it just brings a lot of joy reading it. So I really did enjoy Iris's contributions particularly. First of all, there is an other now that is real that did happen and it's discovered through a wormhole that Costa creates through a great tech invention. And It's something that is really, I think, a great device that you've created. And I wanted to ask about this device and how you thought it would best explore and critique, because it's kind of exploring and critiquing itself at the same time, how it would best do that. And do you see parts of yourself in each of these three characters that you're writing about? Yes, absolutely. Lest our listeners think that this is too complicated. Um, (laughs) Let me answer in, in three steps. First, to say that my previous book, which you kindly mentioned, talking to my daughter about the economy, uh, was effectively a depiction of capitalism and a critique of capitalism. And at the end of that book, uh, one can you know, legitimately say, okay, mate, so you don't like capitalism, the capitalism we have. What's the alternative? And this is a question that no lefty has a, you know, a convincing answer to, really. Yeah. And I thought, okay, it's about time that I you know, put my money where my mouth is and sit down and, and write a, a treatise uh, explaining how things could work today, uh, not with Star Trek technology, not with replicators in the world doing everything for us, but you know, with the technology we have. Could we have a non-capitalist market society that is democratic and very different to the way we're doing things? So that's their motivation. 
uh, I decided that's the first step. The second step is to say, okay, uh, imagine if 2008 we had done things differently and we had used the accumulated anger of the majority of people with the financial system we have in order to bring about this alternative system. And what, how would corporations work? Uh, what would central banks do? What about commercial banking? Would they be commercial banks? What kind of banks would they be? What about international trade? Who owns the houses? Who owns the land? Uh, what happens with taxation? Um, what about you know, sexual or gender relations? Uh, what about migration? How would things work differently when it comes to democracy? Would we still have you know, the, the parliaments that we now have? Uh, would there be citizens' assemblies? So I tried to answer all that. And um, I found it much easier for me to say, okay, imagine that in 2008, the, the time space continuum split and there was another trajectory when we did things differently. But, you know, we now, today, where we are, whether we're in Canberra or in Athens, wherever, some wormhole emerges out of nowhere for some reason. Um, and we can see, we, can, we, we, we get dispatches or, you know, letters or emails from ourselves over the other side telling us how things are happening there. So that's my narrative technique, if you want, trick. That's the second step in my answer. And the third step is to say that, look, I'm not, I try in my life not to be dogmatic. So especially when I'm describing what a, a democratic society would look like, a democratic socialist society would look like, let's say, uh, a liberal democratic socialist society would look like, I often disagree with myself about, you know, what should banks do? I mean, okay, this is what they might be doing, but is this the right thing? So the best way of um, conveying to my readers my own disagreements with myself, or doubt, if you want, or ambivalence, is to have characters that you know fight it out amongst themselves. So I have a neoliberal, Eva, who used to work for Lehman Brothers, and then after Lehman Brothers, he had a you know a kind of nervous breakdown and became an academic, but remained a neoliberal right-wing economist, dry academics, uh, academic professor. And I've known many people like that in my <laughs> life. <laughs> in various universities that I've worked at. Um, th then there is Iris, the contrarian Marxist feminist who hates Marxist and feminists, and you know, she's a recluse and she's simultaneously charming, loves everyone and hates everyone. <laughs> and therefore she, you know, she, she, she's the right person to criticize everything, including, including socialism, including feminism, including her own self. And then there is Costa who is um, a techie. Yeah, he's a fantastic engineer who is responsible for the wormhole and also a very good soul, you know, a, mm. a platonic soul who combines the honesty and simplicity of a platonic dialogue with the most complicated technology in the world. And by the way, if I may say something just to tickle our audience, something I haven't said yes. before, this is uh, just for your show. Costa is a real person and I met him in Australia. He used to work for no longer, but he used to work for cochlear, making cochlear implants. Oh, wow. um, so, <laughs> but of course, you know, then I have developed his character a lot more. So he's done, he does a lot more in another now. So that's more or less the, the structure of the narrative. Mm, that is amazing. I do love the fact that he does seem, you know, quite a philosophical soul, as are the others, of course, but he does strike me as um, someone who's quite thoughtful and and careful, um, maybe in comparison to the other two characters who are very strident in their own kind of way. 
That's right. And uh, and therefore, being the most sensitive soul, she's the yeah. one who suffers most, uh, both in this now, working for corporations that are crashing, but also when faced with the responsibility of conveying to his friends the news that there is another now where things are happening differently. So let's talk about this other now and we can perhaps talk about it through the lens of uh, the different characters because they are important in bringing up these arguments and then critiquing them drawing out the weaknesses um, bringing up questions that the reader would be asking because I certainly when I was reading about Costa speaking with his equivalent in the other now Costi he was talking about the vision the way that companies and businesses have changed in this other now the way that they have a very flat structure that hierarchy has essentially been obliterated and it is something that people have talked about in the past about you know flat structures but the depth and detail of which you go into these corporations or businesses and how they might actually work through Costa and Costi it is quite fascinating to to grapple with the way that you've conceived of it and to also come up with answers to people's but what about X. So I did want to ask about that particular feature of this other now, the way that businesses, small businesses, large businesses are set up and how we might envision it or be inspired by this other now, the way that they're doing things. Because it did remind me of Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, when he was talking about the importance of having meaningful work. And you say in this book that in this other now, meaningless work has pretty much been eradicated. And that also the people who are engaging in this kind of work have a great deal of control over the work that they do, the projects that they choose, the teams that they're part of. And that that, um, in Johan's book, you know, he cited many studies to show that the more control one has over their work and the higher up in a traditional structure they are because they have more control, usually the happier they are, the less depressed they are. So I wanted to ask about that structure and how you see it not just being a benefit for the society economically, but also how it benefits us socially. Well, uh, full disclosure, Johan is a friend. Oh, nice. <laughs> you didn't know that, you see. <laughs> Johan is a friend and we are uh, completely on the same page when it comes to this. Uh, but this is, you know, Johan's idea is not a new idea. He, mm. he has been magnificent in the way that he has connected it to depression, to his own experiences. But if you go back to William Morris, the great English socialist and artist, William Morris's point was precisely that, that a repetitive, soul-destroying work is uh, the solvent of society and of hope. Uh, and um, uh, recreating our production lines and um, the, you know, the labor process, the, the, the way we create stuff, the way we produce value in a way that allows human creativity to come to the forefront of the labor process for William Morris was the most liberal thing you can do. If you want to liberate people, you've got to liberate them from the drudgery of uh, soul-destroying work. And, you know, the, the great paradox is that we have technological advances that are magnificent, we have fantastic apps, and we have robots, and we have uh, you know, technologies that humanity was only dreaming of in the context of science fiction. And yet at the same time, instead of being liberated by the robots, 
creating mechanical slaves that take all the chores away from us, letting us be philosophers or artisans. Instead of that, we have an increasing proportion of the population doing awful jobs, you know, Deliveroo or whatever, you know, Uber drivers. (laughs) And um, so um, going to the heart of your question about how corporations work, look, we take it for granted that corporations must be top-down institutions. You know, you enter, um, you, you go through a very difficult process of being interviewed and assessed. And then, you know, if you get a job with a large corporation, you think, oh my God, this is fantastic. Okay, and then you, you simply have to do as you're told for many, many years, hoping that at some point you'll rise to the top. And um, uh, in many cases, you'll be disappointed along the way, you'll be oppressed, you'll be made to do things which you know are not even good for the company. Uh, Costa, for instance, in the book, begins his life, um, and that's a true story, um, with um, an invention that um, could have improved the lives of patients, which the company puts on a shelf and does not release to the public because of um, its competition strategy not wanting to reveal to its competitors uh, advances that it has made, and therefore not allowing patients to benefit fully from technology which exists. And Costa gets really livid, um, but he can't do anything about that. He's got his sign non-disclosure agreements. They will destroy him if he dares you know, be a whistleblower. This kind of oppression, right? The oppression that I was referring to earlier, that libertarians don't usually speak of. They only speak about the oppression that the state brings upon people, but not the oppression of the corporations bring upon very innovative and good people, like you know, Costa in the book. So, you know, once upon a time, humanity would not imagine a world without slavery. So the point I'm making is that now we cannot imagine a world without hierarchies in the corporations. So I try to sketch out what a corporation without oppression, with um, a horizontal management model would work like. And I go into some detail about um, how would we decide if we all work in a corporation, high-tech corporation, um, how would we decide how much money goes to R&D, how much money goes into the basic salary of everyone, uh, how much money goes into bonuses, how are the bonuses distributed if we don't have a top-down management to say you get this much bonus and you, the other person gets that much. And the beauty of having a novel-like structure is that then, yeah, this is what Costa tells his friends, he discovers from his uh, namesake and the other now, from his own alter ego, is going on in those corporations. And then Eva, the neoliberal, says, yes, but hang on a second, that wouldn't work. Because, you know, if you don't have a hierarchy, then you can't do this and you can't do that. And what happens with capital markets? What happens with the stock exchange? And then they fight it out. And you are absolutely right by having these uh, characters fight it out, I allow different ideas that I have in my own soul, in my own head, to, to be written down. And Amy, I have to tell you that what was uh, so enjoyable about writing this book is that halfway in writing it, I realized that these characters took on a life of their own. And they started having arguments with one another, from which I was learning. I, I, it felt as if I was, you know, a fly on the wall watching them or listening in uh, their arguments <laughs> and actually learning from them. 
it sounds like it was a very joyful thing, particularly because the characters are just so individual and passionate and um, and the things that they're thinking about and talking about are really nitty gritty, like they get right to the heart of some of these issues and the things that we've been grappling with about, well, what is your alternative? When someone does ask someone on the left, well, what would you replace capitalism with? These are the things that do tear us apart, that we have to keep grappling with, we have to keep arguing about within ourselves and also between ourselves. And one of the key parts of your other now is the removal of tradable shares. And that links into this corporation or corporate structure, which is that when the employee or the person enters the workplace, they receive one share, as does every other, and they get one vote with that one share. And you show how the effects then, they really cascade because once you get rid of tradable shares, for example, you eliminate commercial banks. And I was really interested in that particular change and how you are still left with a market, but not the market that we conceive of today. And I wanted to ask about that conception of the market because it becomes more important towards the end of the book when we hear from Eva and Iris and they're talking about the features of a market and whether this conception of the other now is really how the market was intended to be. Eva, who is the neoliberal in the book, uh, begins by being just steadfastly opposed to everything she hears about the other now because it's too social, it's too lefty for her. Uh, but as the book unfolds, she starts realizing that um, what they've done the other now by banning share markets, by having one person, one share, one vote, as you put it, non-tradable shares, in the same way your vote is not tradable. You know, your political vote is not tradable. You have one vote, you cast it whenever you're asked to cast it, and you can't sell it. You can't rent it, you cannot um, deliver it up or down in the stock exchange. <laughs> uh, or like a library card, you know, you enroll at the university, you get a library card, it gives you the right to do stuff like you know, get books out, but you can't rent it and you can't sell it. Uh, and Eva realizes that this is the end of capitalism, but it is the liberation, the true liberation of markets. Because Amy, think about it, as we speak, and this is a statistic that I can back up with facts and figures. If you look at all the companies that are listed in the New York Stock Exchange, the largest stock exchange in the world. 90% belong to three companies, to three super companies, like Vanguard, State Street, and so on. Hmm? Wow. That's not a free market. Think about it. You know, mm. you've got three or four airlines that belong effectively to the same company that nobody has heard of. Very few. Who has heard of State Street? Very few people have. No. <laughs> and then it owns, you know, five banks, three airlines, seemingly com competitors. No, of course, these are not competitors when they are, when they are owned by the same super company. They collude. So, you know, these, it, and why have we allowed these three companies to own 90% of companies in the New York Stock Exchange? Because of the share market. Because concentration of share ownership drives this super concentration of who owns whom. And then that kills markets. And this is why if you look at the fluctuation of prices in significant uh, economic sectors like airlines, uh, don't look now because we have the coronavirus catastrophe, but that's another matter. Um, prices don't fluctuate. Uh, they, they fix prices. 
<laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and, and all in the name of competition. So that's what Eva realizes, that when you do away with tradable shares, two things happen. Firstly, uh, corporations become smaller because, you know, for um, um, members of a corporation on the basis of one share, one vote, uh, to be able to coordinate uh, their activities and to decide, you know, how much money will go to R&D and so on, you can't have a corporation of 200,000 people. You've got to have at most you know, two or 3,000 in a corporation where the system works. So corporations become smaller, which means that each one of them has less market power. So you've got more competition. Then at the same time, um, if bankers out there cannot play around with shares, then they will have to concentrate on you and our listeners, that is on retail customers. They cannot, uh, because now they don't give a damn about you. Most of what bankers do today is to manipulate share markets, to create derivatives, to place bets in, uh, in options markets and so on and so forth. And that is all at the expense of uh, customers, of uh, you know, families, of small businesses that um, um, simply do not get the service and have, pay, they have to pay through the roof for services that are provided by banks that don't care about small businesses or the little people. Mm. So suddenly Eva realizes that markets are freed up when capitalism dies. And that is the, the paradox that I want to introduce through another now. Yes, it was funny to, to read that quote, a proper market revival requires the end of capitalism, which was this quote unquote absurd idea that uh, Eva finally comes to. And uh, it is a really quite provocative realisation, which I'm going to continue thinking about for a while, I think. I did want to touch on two other things that are really important parts of this story and that struck me. And I think given that we've said that commercial banks no longer exist in this other now, we should also mention that the role of a central bank changes and it becomes more important. For example, every person is provided with a bank account from birth by the central bank called personal capital or per cap. And each person's account has three separate funds, accumulation, legacy and dividend. And that to me was important because when you were talking about corporations and workers and those who are able to work, it did make me initially ask, well, what replaces the welfare system? What supports those people who perhaps can't work full-time or at all? Perhaps they have a disability, for example, or they're a full-time carer. And so this answer to that It was really quite illuminating to me and also because it seemed to link in with your DM25 movement and the idea of a universal basic dividend as opposed to a universal basic income. So I did want to draw that point out with you, given it's so important to the discussions we're currently having about an alternative to this very repressive system that really doesn't work. Let me give you an example. Uh, when the coronavirus hit Europe in early March, uh, I had just arrived from Australia back to Europe, and um, we sat down at the M25 movement, um, the policy committee, and we came up with a proposal. Since we had a, a lockdown brewing and people couldn't work, you know, they had uh, a catastrophic loss of income, and we needed to support citizens around Europe. We made a very simple proposal that the European Central Bank 
put in every bank account of every citizen, of every resident of the European Union, 2,000 euros, something like, you know, 3,000 Australian dollars. Just, just overnight, mm-hmm. you, know, you wake up in the morning, you go to the ATM or you go through web banking and you find out you've got $3,000 in there. And um, we did the calculation that would have been 750 billion euros overnight. That's what it would have cost. Of course, you know, right-wing opponents would say, oh, but what you discovered the money tree again, have you, you socialists? <laughs> Um, interestingly, Amy, what happened was three, three days later, it wasn't four days, it was three days later, Christine Lagarde, whom I mentioned before, because now she's moved to, the, to be the president of the European Central Bank, gave a press conference and she announced, that's an accident, I'm not saying that she, she copied the number, <laughs> uh, just coincidence, right? She announced 750 billion would be printed by the European Central Bank to provide support during the early phases of coronavirus, of the pandemic, to Europeans. The difference is, instead of crediting it to the bank accounts of Europeans, what they did, which is what they do, is they gave it to the commercial banks, hoping that the commercial banks would then lend it to companies, hoping that the companies would then take this money and invest it and create mm. jobs. Because companies don't invest in jobs during a pandemic or during the period after 2008. Because, you know, the, the billions go from the European Central Bank to Deutsche Bank or Societe Generale, the French bank. They, the banker picks up the phone. They're not going to give it to you or to little people because they, they, they don't trust they will get their money back, especially if you're locked down. So the, they, what they do is they pick up the phone and they call Volkswagen, right? The car company and say, do you want a few billion for free? You know, because they get the money with negative interest rates. So even if they give it for free, they make money. The, yeah. the, you know, the bankers, the commercial bank. Volkswagen says, okay, free money, I'll take it. Uh, then they take it and they look at you and me or, you know, people in Germany or in France and say, oh, they're not going to be able to buy an expensive Tesla-like electric car for, you know, 100,000 Australian dollars. Uh, so I'm not going to invest in creating a Tesla competitor in Germany because the people out there won't be able to, to afford it. So what Volkswagen does is they take them the billions and they go to the stock exchange and buy back Volkswagen shares. That way, they push their share of their own company up. Their own salary goes up because their bonuses are linked to the share price. And who gains? They do. What about the rest of society? Zilch. Zero. Nothing. So, in another now, uh, everybody has a bank account with the central bank as a person. Because as we speak, you know, you know, the National Australia Bank, Commonwealth Bank, and so on in Australia, they have a bank account with your Reserve Bank of Australia, right? You don't. Yeah. But imagine if we all did. If we all had a bank account with the Central Bank of our country, the Reserve Bank of Australia, bank of Australia in your case. And the Reserve Bank of Australia during bad times, or even, even good times, put a certain amount of money in everybody's bank account. Suddenly, you do away with the Department of Social Security with all these hugely bureaucratic and oppressive and authoritarian nanny state devices, the purpose of which is to decide who is deserving and who is not deserving, who should get, you know, uh, $25.6 and who should get $136.8. So there you are. That's, that's the innovation <laughs> in another man. Yeah. And, um, and in terms of taxation, it's also vastly simpler. And it also doesn't create the types of division that you've highlighted exist nowadays that taxation seems to provoke, particularly in workers who earn far less. Well, yes. In my, in my other now, there is no income tax uh, and there is no sales tax, no GST. 
the only taxes that exist are every corporation, which is of course cooperatively owned because people working in the corporation have one share, one vote. Five um, percent of their revenues, not profits, because there's no such thing in my world. Um, their revenues, right? Yeah. And those revenues are shared between the workers and all the other uses and uh, costs that the company has to, has to pay. So five percent, yeah, nice little rounded five percent of revenues goes to the state, to to society. Um, and then the only other tax is tax on land use, so that uh, those who use commercial land for commercial purposes pay society um, a rent, a land rent. And that's it. No more taxes. It sounds too good to be true. <laughs> 5% is a great figure. I think it's quite reasonable. It doesn't make you think that it is too steep for any kind of company. One last thing I wanted to pick up on, and it actually was really inspiring to read and quite moving, I've got to say, um, being a woman reading this particular speech that you put in the book. And it's pertinent to Iris's story and Iris's arguments with herself in this other now who is Cirrus and this is all about sexual politics and and the patriarchy and sex as well and I'll read one of the quotes out to illustrate this for us. Cirrus says from this other now and, and tells Iris who's in our now she says mountains move banking becomes extinct even capitalism dies but patriarchy lives on like a hard to kill cockroach the difference is that it is now disguised beneath an even thicker veneer of political correctness and one of the things that i did say just before that moved me was actually esmeralda's soho address and esmeralda was one of these key activists who brought about this new other now and it was just brilliant to read and quite refreshing and kind of shook me out of myself for a moment and realized how we haven't really come all that far. And you talk about liberation and how we were actually trying to achieve liberation as opposed to equality. So I did want to ask what your inspiration was for that speech and the ideas that are very interesting within that speech, the relations between men and women, the patriarchal society, and the fact that one of the interesting parts of it is the idea that love, falling in love in particular, is anti-capitalist. And uh, I just loved reading it. And I just wanted to understand what your inspiration behind that was. Loathing of left-wingers of my generation who always used to say, stupidly, allow me to say, <laughs> that, you know, if we bring socialism about, then uh, all our problems will go away. You know, racism, sexism, gender relations will all be fantastic. I never believed that. I still don't believe it. Humanity is perfectly capable of creating new forms of oppression. Patriarchy, as, I, as you <laughs> quoted me saying, is a cockroach that is almost impossible to kill. Uh, my inspiration has been great feminists in my life from my grandmother, whom I mentioned, who died in the 1950s, to my mother, to um, women that I live with, including my daughter, I have to say, yeah. <laughs> um, whom I don't live with, unfortunately, because she lives in Sydney. But nevertheless, it is, um, you know, her spirit is always with me. Mm. Um, the fact that, you know, I look inside myself as a man and I discover relics of um, patriarchal tendencies which are so difficult to repress. Um, so 
in this book, I didn't want to paint an, another now as ideal. That's why I have Iris in there, constantly taking shots at uh, this democratic liberal socialism, saying, yeah, okay, you think you created a, a fantastic world, but you have not. I want even my other now to be constantly criticized. And I really tru truly believe that even if we democratized economic life, the struggle for um, of feminism would continue because for me, feminism has nothing to do with women's issues. It's all about power. It's all, all, all about discrimination and the fantastic capacity of humanity constantly to find ways of dividing and multiplying power grids into even more power, um, oppressive power grids. So Esmeralda's soft address for me is um, a way of um, showing that even if the world had gone in the direction of my dreams, uh, there would need to be a woman that, um, a revolutionary that has brought about this world, uh, this new world, this new social order, who is a hero of the people, but nevertheless, who is marginalized because she keeps pointing out uh, the, the failures, the failures of the new system, of the new social order. Um, and Esmeralda becomes marginalized in, in the other now. And this is one of the reasons why Iris turns against the market socialism that uh, I've created. Uh, so part of me, part of me is skeptical, even of the other now that I am putting forward as an answer to the question, so what is the alternative? Mm. And um, I won't give away the ending, so I hope people can read the ending because the characters all make individual choices at the end about which now they would prefer, which now they subscribe to and would like to live in but it is a really interesting ending that you provide. And um, I just wanted to, to say thank you for putting forward such a compelling vision that it's not one-sided at all. It's so complex, but also simple. It's got great depth and thought, and it's also really challenging in the sense of it's challenging the reader, myself included, to think about what would we accept what do we think is the other option? Do we agree with these characters and their critiques? Do we have other critiques that we ourselves think of? And I just felt it was a great contribution and the way that you have structured it and created the story, it seems like an ideal mode of delivery. Instead of writing a manifesto as you could have, you've written something that I think is deeply engaging and provocative. Well, what can I say? Except thank you. Thank you, Amy. You're very welcome. And I just wanted to ask one other thing, if you don't mind, because you brought it up a couple of days ago, and I feel it would be remiss of me and quite terrible as an Australian to not ask. And that is that our media in Australia and our government has um, not been interested in the plight of Julian Assange. And I know that you are very much at the forefront of advocating for Julian, as a number of others are. So I guess from an Australian perspective and an Australian radio station, I did want to ask about that and to say, first of all, I'm sorry on behalf of all of us for not doing enough. It is really deeply disappointing. But also from your perspective, what do you think that Australia and also citizens here should be doing and what can we do to help Julian? We need to speak out. We need to stop being afraid of the powers that be. And there is no doubt that um, there is a great deal of fear when you have faced the national security apparatus of the United States in speaking out on behalf of a man, an Australian for that matter, who um, is now rotting. He's being driven into the ground. He's dying effectively mm. in Belmont high security prison for the crime of letting us know 
of crimes against humanity performed by our governments in our name behind our backs. You don't have to like Julian or to agree with him uh, on everything that he's done or said, but he's rotting on our behalf. He could have been a high-ranking executive in Google. He is brilliant technologically, but instead he spent 10 years in hell because, because he, 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 he's a whistleblower. And he told us that which we have to know. It is remarkable that all those wonderful newspapers, uh, from the New York Times, to the Spiegel in Germany, to the Guardian, and so on, even in Australia, managed to reveal to our citizens what happened in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and so on, but because of Julian's sacrifice, and now they are doing nothing to help him survive as a physical person. He's an Australian that needs the support of the Australian government and the Australian people. If he is effectively annihilated as a result of telling the truth on the basis of a charge of espionage by a country of which it is not a citizen and where he hasn't been actually for yeah. decades, uh, then Amy, you're next. Our um, you know, friends in the media in Australia, across Australia are next. Citizens of Australia are next. Anyone who embarrasses the great power yeah, there's so much at stake beyond Julian, but of course, I'm really glad and grateful for you for speaking out on it. And I think we need to um, lift our game and hopefully this will spark some people to speak out here as well. Yanis, thank you so much for speaking with me today about your book, Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present, which is out now through Bodley Head, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. And uh, I hope you do have a wonderful week and also best of luck with your political movement, DM25, which is really um, picking up steam. And uh, and I also thought the Progressive International Conference is another wonderful um, feature of that too. Well, thank you so much, Amy. My greetings to all my Australian friends. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.